Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Pack your bags, Cocktail College listeners, and don't forget to throw in a jigger and mixing glass because we're headed to Barbados today to explore one of the island's most beloved drinks, the corn and oil. I'd also advise approaching this journey with an open mind because the preparation of the corn and oil you may know and love or loathe is not how today's guest tackles the drink, nor is it entirely true to the traditional version. Yes, we're going to mix up rum, lime, falernum and bitters, but we're also going to omit a crucial constituent of the modern version, robbing said drink of its striking appearance, but with good reason, of course. Discussing that and more with us today is Kevin Beery, the beverage director of Chicago's award-winning Three Dots and a Dash and the Bamboo Room at Three Dots and a Dash. Kevin himself is something of a rum fanatic, having traveled the globe to visit dozens of distilleries and curate one of the largest rum libraries in the country. What are the merits of using a lime coin versus juice and or peel? Is it ever appropriate to prepare your own falernum? And what exactly is blackstrap molasses again? We'll find out right now, listener, on this week's edition of the Cocktail College Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin Beery. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you in the virtual studio it is today. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're hitting us there from Chicago, am I right? That's right, sitting in the bar as we speak. Fantastic, in the natural habitat. And, you know... It is a shame, speaking of that bar, because we weren't able to have you join us for the Three Dots and a Dash cocktail. Uh, we hadn't been connected before then, but I'm happy that we're we're going to be covering instead, I'm going to say a similarly interestingly named drink. Uh, it's the corn and oil today. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, you know, really, I think special and interesting uh, circa 1700s uh, Barbados specialty. Mm-hmm. And one of those that immediately falls into the camp, at least in my mind here, visually very interesting drinks. And and perhaps, too, that's where the name arrives today, because uh, shock, spoiler alert, uh, as with probably every single one of the drinks that we've covered on this show, this does not specifically contain neither corn nor oil, though I guess you could make a you know some kind of um, concession there for bourbon and whiskey-based drinks, but no corn and no oil in this drink. So where does that name come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't I don't know for sure. Some things I've sort of heard um, or at least read on the internet uh, is that there's a, a line from the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy that has to do with uh, that mentions corn and oil. Um, and then potentially also that um, it could be a shortened version of something called corning oil. But yeah, hmm. of either of those, I'm not 100% that that's actually the name, the mm-hmm. cocktail name origins. And can you also, you know, so we know what's not in it, but I guess for those who aren't familiar with what is in this drink, uh, can you highlight that briefly now for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's a little bit of a debate on that, depending on who you talk to. I think, you know, with the resurgence of the classic cocktail movement in the States, uh, we saw a version of a corn and oil become very popular um, that contained rum, lime juice, falernum, and then this like big, thick float of blackstrap rum over the top. Uh, and that did give like, as you were mentioning, sort of this like oil slick appearance of there being this layer of dark rum sort of floating at the top of this cocktail. 
Um, but when I think you speak to some folks that are a little more familiar with how the cocktail is drank on the island of Barbados, the notion of blackstrap rum doesn't really, you know, fall into their traditional idea of how a cornell is made. Um, you know, on the island, cornell just being nice Barbados aged rum mm-hmm. with some falernum, uh, so a couple of dashes of Agnesur bitters, and kind of a squeeze of lime coin. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe it's just one of those kind of happy accidents then, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like the, the the martini, which some folks think might be an evolution of the Martinez and that's where its name come from. Or, you know, you talk about an ubiquitous uh, vermouth brand there, Martini and Rossi. So maybe neither of those things are true, but it just so happens that it also works for the uh, recognized modern day iteration as we see here with that, like you said, that that blackstrap rum there that does look like a, a an oil slick kind of floating on top of the drink. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is very, very much tied to Barbados, as you mentioned there. Seems like it's one of those drinks that comes into the category two of like one where it doesn't seem to have one singular inventor or origin story, but an origin place. Um, Falernum being another very important ingredient in this drink. Can you talk about that ingredients ties to to Barbados and the island there. Yeah, so also a, t- a traditional cocktail component there in Barbados. Um, and on the island, at least in my experience, there's plenty of like these kind of really spiced and interesting like cordials and tonics that are incorporated into the rum drinking culture. And I think Falernum is definitely one of those. Um, with sort of... And there's also been some debate as to the... Uh, you know, what the ingredients of Falernum actually should be. Um, so from our understanding, uh, Falernum has a base of rum um, to which uh, lime zest, clove, uh, ginger, and almonds are macerated. Uh, and then that whole sort of mixture is sweetened to that of, of a, a similar sweetness level to like a one-to-one simple syrup. Nice. And yeah, definitely does kind of call to mind... Uh, other ingredients that we've explored before here as well, like allspice dram, things like that too, where we're using a, a spirit base that's probably beyond a neutral spirit base, uh, but then building upon that with other kind of complementary flavors and other, other ingredients that add extra dimensions to it as an ingredient and then ultimately the, the cocktails that it's yielded in. For sure. In terms of modern day, you know, you, you have a bar, you run a bar there that, that that's really designed towards this style and category of drinks. Um, Corn and Oil is probably one that folks who are interested in cocktails are familiar with as a name and maybe, you know, that image of what it looks like. But on a day-to-day basis, how much is this getting cold out at your bar and is this something you'd ever have on your menu? Um, I would say cold call, not a ton. Um, I would, I, I think that, you know, it, it's definitely within the lexicon of like more interesting classic rum drinks. So I would say it comes up from time to time. And as far as putting it on a menu, I currently have one on our bamboo room menu. Um, and we have had a couple iterations of it on, on menus through the years. Nice. And, and, and you personally, when it comes to putting a drink like this on the menu, like, like you said, it's a, you know, it doesn't get cold, cold a lot, but it probably has some recognition do you like to stick to a, a quote-unquote very classical formula and approach there? Or are you thinking maybe, you know, we'll take that template, but maybe we'll add a little bit of our own spin just to, I don't know, get, you know, give a reason for us having it on the menu? Sure. Uh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Mm-hmm. I think that for us, you know, 
a lot of what we do is sort of adapting these dusty uh, tropical cocktail recipes um, to the modern standard. That is to say, whether change in product or sort of a misremembered uh, recipe gets, you know, sort of distributed. A lot of these old rum tropical cocktail recipes need a lot of adjustment before they're a delicious palatable cocktail. So I think, you know, it's a little bit of both for us. We we like to, to be very traditional at times and stick to very classic proportions and stick to the original ingredients. But then at the same time, we've always um, explored um, what we consider modern cocktails are our own creations that are are a little bit more loose interpretations on some of these mm-hmm. classic recipes. And, you know, the short answer to the following question is always going to be, I would imagine, balance. But for this drink specifically, what are you looking for from a perfected version or the version that you want to serve to your guests? Are there any ingredients or or flavor profiles or notes that you want to maybe shine more than others? Yeah, I can confidently say that I was making corn oils wrong for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Interesting. <laughs> um, uh, you know, following what I thought was an accurate recipe, which, like I was saying, was sort of what was circulating around at, at, during the, the American classic cocktail movement, which was a corn oil that had a ton of lime juice, a ton of falernum, uh, was served over crushed ice, and then had this like dark float of blackjack over the top. Um, and I would say I was enlightened to the fact that was not correct by Richard Thiel, who's the uh, distiller from the Four Square Distillery in Barbados, who was born and raised on Barbados, and his family has a long history uh, in rum production and rum trade on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has explained to me that corn oil, the way his grandfather drank it, was very different from from this, you know, really juice heavy um, concoction that uh, I think is what many people here think of corn and oil. Uh, mm-hmm. And the way he described it to me was that you take two ounces of a, a really nicely aged Barbados rum, something like any of the the four square rums, uh, the RL Seal, uh, perhaps a real McCoy 12-year-old, um, to which you're adding a half an ounce of falernum. And this would be a, a falernum that's you know at that sweetest level of a one-to-one syrup. Mm-hmm. And then four dashes of mango and the squeeze of lime. And when you look at the composition of that cocktail, that more follows the proportions of something like an old fashioned than it does this big juicy tropical drink. Interesting. And I, it's a it's a fantastic way to drink them. And and that's sort of the method ever since, you know, um, having one uh, that he made at a conference or I should say a presentation on Falernum uh, that I believe was at um, Arizona Cocktail Week or... That one of, might have been at Tails. In mm-hmm. any case, um, you know that sort of opened my eyes to to the way corn oil should really be done. That's more in the style of an old fashioned. And that would seem to me also to make maybe a little bit more sense through a historical lens when we look at you know the very definition of what a cocktail is and that very famous definition, right? Of you know spirit sweetening agent and a bitter component there and water, water probably arriving through means of dilution in this case, uh, bitters you spoke about, and then the sweetening agent. Interesting in this front that we're talking about something that's also alcoholic too, versus, you know, just a, a simple syrup or sugar on its own. But through a historical lens, maybe that does seem to make more sense, right? About the drinks, the mixed drinks that were being consumed at that time versus, I don't know, shaken sour variations for example sure and do you find so that's the uh, approach that you continue to take today 
Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with with using a really good quality rock. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take, let's just as an example, we're doing one with the Foursquare 2010, right? Which is a, a 12-year-aged um, ex-bourbon barrel, just, over, you know, higher proof, really beautiful and rich rum. And you set that off with just a little bit of falernum and that squeeze of lime and a couple dashes of ango over a nice big cube of ice. I mean, the cocktail is awesome. So mm-hmm. it, it starts with good rum. I wouldn't say, you know, you can't grab any rum off the shelf and, and make this cocktail and expect to have great results. You know, something like this really does have to stand on the quality of the rum. And for those of us, you know, those listening out there today who, uh, you know, are familiar with rum being a cane-based product, maybe it comes from molasses, maybe it's cane juice. Uh, can you remind us, Barbadian rum, what are we typically talking about there in terms of style and profile? Uh, broadly, I would say it, these are going to be molasses fermented rums that are a blend of pot and column still um, distillates. Um, you know, generally pretty well aged. Um, of course, there's always going to be younger examples, but. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have the liberty to get into brands or not here. You've just mentioned, you've reeled off a couple of my favorites right there, Foursquare uh, seals there with that iconic bottle that, to my mind, kind of looks like either a seal or like a candle that's been yeah. burning for a little too long, a, a wonderful dinner where perhaps a lot of rum has been consumed. Mm-hmm. And also interesting to note, uh, you know, the Foursquare distillery that does RL Seal and the Foursquare and the Real McCoy Roms, um, they also produce uh, Taylor's Velvet Flirtum. Oh, so, interesting. You know, there's a, a real tight connection there. Um, and that's not the only like large-scale commercial Falernum you see on Barbados. Generally here in the States, that's pretty much the only one imported one from Barbados you see, but there are a few others. Mm-hmm. And you kind of answered a question that I was going to have for you there, you know, like uh, Falernum for uh, definitely an ingredient that a, a lot of people are maybe reaching for less. Is this kind of a one-stop shop or is there, you know, variations out there? But knowing the quality of those rums, that gives me some comfort in assuming that, that that the falernum that they're putting out there too is probably of the highest, highest quality too. Yeah, it's very, very good. Um, you know, for me personally, I like to house make falernum. Um, I think there's just a, a certain, I don't know, a freshness to the flavor of the product that would be impossible in a shelf-stable product. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, in a bottle that you could buy off the shelf, you know, Velvet is is for sure one of the uh, the best, if not the best option. Um but for me personally, I, I like to to craft my own. And that stands to reason too when when looking through the lens of the style of drinks and that you would serve and, and, and you know your bar is focused that you're going to be getting through that. So you have that, well, I'm going to say luxury, but there's a lot of effort that goes into it. But I'm thinking of that versus your standard or high quality cocktail bar, but one that has a broader focus or maybe is more focused on the, on, on the I don't know, the quote unquote Western classics, your martinis, your Manhattans, your old fashions, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. They're, they're not likely going to be expending the effort to uh, house make their own Falaritum for a, a once in a while call, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to stay on the topic of rum and, and we're going to move on to a different rum in a second here. But before we do... Um, Foursquare. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Folks might remember reading, I'm going to say within the last 10 years, probably more recently, maybe the last five years, or maybe it's a little bit longer back than that since, you know, we had this pandemic and all, all concept of time has gone out the window. Um, I do remember a time where a lot of people were saying Foursquare, it's the Pappy Van Winkle of rum. 
And there was this general feeling, certainly in media, I don't know what the case was in the industry, but that this might help super premium rum uh, as, a, as a category and a segment. Um, have we kind of seen that come to light in a way where, where Foursquare is this product that remains very hard to get hold of? Or generally speaking, are, are prices quite stable and not like the point where it's like, I can't use this anymore as a product or I can't even find it? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely in smaller supply. So, you know, I can't speak for what it's like in a, for a consumer in every market. But mm-hmm. I would say, you know, at least now, if you can't get yourself a bottle of of Foursquare, you can still get a very good rum that comes from the Foursquare distillery in the form of Real McCoy or RL Seal. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the real uh, benefit to this scenario, and I think you kind of alluded to it, is like, you know, the coming of age of the, of the, or the change of the guard in what's considered a premium or super premium rum, you know, which five or 10 years ago, the, what was considered the premium rum, if you stand that next to a bottle of Foursquare, they're like, worlds apart like foursquare actually is a legitimate bona fide premium rum yeah um whereas there are other other things that i think have been broadly marketed um maybe you know ronza copper or such that you know we're in that category but certainly from a product quality perspective aren't anywhere even close yeah those especially when you're looking at things through a data perspective right those category or those segment names there premium super premium especially in rum, they tend to be misnomers, right? Because like anything above, I, it's, it's around 20 bucks. That might not be wrong, but it's certainly something that, that, that doesn't feel premium, but is considered premium. And again, tells maybe a slightly different tale over what's going on in the category than actually what is true. I don't know. That's, that's something that's always struck me as a journalist, at least. Yeah, and I mean, it's a tricky category in that there's no, there's so many countries that produce rum. There's so many styles. Um, and there's no unified sort of set of rules that applies to the production. Um, so I think at least the nice part is that I think while premium rum is, rum is even getting more recognition, um, it's encouraging to see that sort of the bottom of the market, those really low end products have, have kind of started to drop off and definitely sort of lost some share in popularity. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And, and it, calls to mind for me at least something that, um, you know, friend of the show, uh, rum evangelist Brian Miller has, has said to me before an occasion, which is that like rum as an overall category, in some instances, it needs to be less ashamed to be itself, right? Like these days we have products marketed as this is the rum for the bourbon drinker, or this is a spiced yeah. rum, or this is a rum mm-hmm. that, you know, contains this or does that. And it's like, Rum has nothing to be ashamed of as a, as a spirit. It, it's phenomenal. It's wonderful. And again, I keep coming back to Foursquare and people like Richard Seal here. They're not alone, but those are people that really are showcasing like how good this spirit can be. Yeah. And when you talk about, you know, the, the phrase like the pappy of rum, the nice part here, at least the time period we're in is like, these rums are very, still very accessible at a, a reasonable price. I mean... $80 gets you an incredible bottle of rum. Oh, yeah, for sure. And also, again, I don't want to be reductive in terms of numbers and age statements, but $80 will get you something that's almost certainly aged longer than anything on the American whiskey market, just in terms of years. But then you want to talk about the aging conditions in yeah, the countries, right. right? So then it takes it onto a whole new level. Yeah. So I think for the, for the educated consumer... Uh, it is a great time to be enjoying rum. 
you know, that the, the availability of, of quality rum has just increased so much. And there's, there's so many great things out there. Um, and they're all still at a reasonably good value. Yeah, and I guess if we can just squeeze one last drop out of this Pappy analogy and, you know, and this producer too, it's like, and it, you know, this is not a sponsored episode, folks. This is just, I guess, two people here who are very passionate about these products. But like, you know, if you can't find Foursquare, you mentioned there are seals, but also Real McCoy, which I think continues to be one of the biggest bargains in rum. That's like your, your Weller back in the day, right? Versus Pappy, like, Similar kind of product, same producer, uh, maybe a little bit more accessible price-wise and availability-wise. All of them amazing. Yep. And I guess one final shout I, I would like to make here goes to, uh, you know, my friends, at least over there at Altamar Brands, who I believe import all of those products. Um, they have have always kept uh, the wheels nicely greased here at VinePair when it comes to uh, getting quality rums our ways and allowing us to keep on top of, you know, the, the exceptional products that are out there. So uh, those guys are doing fantastic work. Um, now on to the other side of the rum equation for this drink, Blackstrap rum. Where do you want to mm. start with that? Yeah, so that's, that's a tricky one, you know? So I think you, the most, let's just get right into it, the most uh, commonly available Blackstrap in the U.S. is Cruzan's Blackstrap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, I think we should, you could, you could have the idea that we should take some pride in an American-made product. Um, but the unfortunate part is just not a very good rum. And it's not a very well-made rum mm-hmm. uh, in that it's, it has very little, if any, aging, artificial color, and sort of uh, a flavoring component. So I don't really recommend the use of Blackstrap rum for anything, at least not the the blackstrap that you would buy off the shelf for 15 bucks right and the whole style of that you know or subcategory i guess of this spirit blackstrap is linked to this idea of blackstrap molasses right which as a real product would be what the 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 most reduced version of molasses that's left after the sugar refining process yeah, so like a, just a lot of of ash content, uh, really dark, almost like a, a burnt flavor profile to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, like you'll see blackstrap molasses on the shelf of the grocery store, um, and that is not what you would consider like distiller's blackstrap molasses. That's still a much higher grade of molasses, a much higher sugar content than than that sort of really low grade uh, molasses you would use to distill around. And I, I think this might be, I don't know, I don't know whether this analogy is going to work here at all, right? But this, I, I, I brazed off a Boston butt over the weekend and, you know, kept topping that up with some nice Demerara sugar. And it did develop this real thick, dark crust on it that when you eat it on its own was, let's be honest, it was completely burnt. But with the rest of that meat and maybe a sauce, it kind of tasted pretty good. Um, so where am I going with that analogy? When it comes to using blackstrap molasses, uh, blackstrap rums in cocktails, if there are some out there that maybe you might consider to be good quality, is this something that you see as a seasoning ingredient versus something that can stand alone as like a two-ounce base of a cocktail? Mm. Uh, maybe I'm being too hard on blackstrap rum, but a, a blackstrap-based cocktail, just not for me. I think in, no, in moderation, you. Uh, it, it, you know, it certainly could be used. And I think so part of that leads to the other misnomer about black sharp rum and that, oh, it's made from black sharp molasses. Like most 
you know, rums are either made from fresh cane juice or from molasses. And the molasses that's used to make the majority of rums is what you would consider blackstrap, low-grade molasses. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't negatively impact the flavor of the rum. In the case of blackstrap rum, that's rum that gets distilled from molasses. And then theoretically, something like blackstrap molasses being added back in with coloring after the distillation process. Right. yeah, I would say that if you do want that flavor, if you're going for that flavor, the use of a little molasses in cocktails does somewhat of the same thing, but gives you the option of really subbing in a much more quality product. No, and I, I'll say, you know, I, I don't think you are being, being you know, overly harsh there too, because it does call to this greater question surrounding rum. And maybe I touched upon that earlier too, which is like fairly loose regulations, right? All of these things are allowed, but it's not the regulations. Maybe it's more the the lack of transparency from from many producers, um, or maybe have held this category back in the past. This is not an original thought of my own. I know this is a fairly kind of common thinking point there, but yeah, products like that that purport to be one thing but actually really aren't like that's not moving the rum category forward in any way, is it? Uh, no, I would say I would say it hurts it, and that's sort of I think what held rum back for so long was that you walked in a liquor store and there was you know an entire aisle full of every flavor of rum that you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. which I think you know, and that was a lot of people's first experience with rum was these heavily flavored unaged column still rums, um, and that it's taken sort of a while for the category to sort of overcome. Well, I, I very much like therefore that you know the iteration of this cocktail, the thinking that you're bringing to today's episode, therefore, is um, is trying to approach the original version or an authentic version and one, too, that, again, doesn't incorporate too many of these ingredients that uh, are maybe hiding something or not being completely truthful. Um, yeah. We can move on to lime, therefore. So you said in the standard version of this drink, this maybe gets a lot more juice. But what you're looking yeah. for here is just like a coin, maybe in the kind of tea punch way. Is that what you're thinking? Oh, yes, exactly. Right. Like, so you're you're putting like, you know, 10, maybe 15 drops of lime juice into this cocktail that has the balance of an old fashioned. So it still drinks as this food forward cocktail with a nice like hint of the lime oils that then get expressed over the top just a touch of acidity and it's just this beautiful rich spice out of flarinum and, and just a, a backbone of a nice strong rum. Oh, nice. Yeah, that sounds wonderful there. And then final ingredient for this, we're talking uh, bitters. Yeah, um, little, little Agnesar bitters, which I think does play. I mean, I would say it's not as um, pronounced as you see. It's not as pronounced as you would maybe appreciate in something like an old-fashioned because you have all that spice flavor from the falernum. But I still think that bringing in a little extra bitter is helping to balance out uh, the sugar, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that touch of acidity. And from a tropical rum-based drinks perspective, are there maybe any lesser-known bitters, brands, or, or, or you know, flavors of bitters, for want of a better word, there that you look to yourself as a as a go-to ingredient? Maybe something like. I've got this cocktail, it's 99% of the way there, but it needs something else. Ah, what about a dash of this? Is there is there anything you can enlighten us to today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty of good bitters options. I think not to, to necessarily um, pigeonhole yourself into only using cocktail bitters when you're in that situation where a cocktail where you think it needs just this extra layer of complexity or balance. You know, there's um, plenty of other things you could put in your dash or bottle that are that could be cool additions. I don't think you have to like 
laser focused and on bitters. Um, you know, absinthe is obviously a good example there. Mm. There's some really funky cane juice rums um, that we like to use kind of in a dasher bottle uh, in that same sort of concept to add just that one extra layer, but in a really finite proportion. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, gentian forward products are, are really delicious in in such a use, whether you're using a little Suze um, or something along those lines. Uh, and then also even just a little uh, green or yellow chartreuse is always a awesome dashing agent for some tropical rum drinks as well. Oh, I, I I love that. I love to hear that. That really calls to mind something too that we had on a recent episode. I think it was William Elliott. We were talking about the A La Louisiane and he was talking about doing something very similar with absinthe, but putting it in a dasher bottle. Uh, I don't want to maybe get too far ahead. This might come up later in the show. It might not. But I think that is a tool in your bar and filled with some of those different ingredients that you just spoke about there. I'm sure that probably unlocks a whole load of possibilities when it comes to creating cocktails. Definitely. Just having those on hand. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, and also just one other note on the corn oil. It's it's a recipe that's a proportion that sort of opens the door for some great variations. You know, we do one that uh, brings in a little uh, Boston Boal Madeira and a nice uh, blend of dark teas into that original proportion. And it, you know, obviously changes the profile of the drink, but it's just such a good canvas for some some small variations. Mm-hmm. You know, Kevin, I love the fact that, you know, we come on today, you know, full full disclosure here for the listeners. I didn't know which approach you were going to take when it came to talking about this drink. I thought our conversation might take us through the realms of like what floats in drinks or, you know, what, you know, the opposite of that. I forget the name of it, like a, a sink or a drop or whatever, but like inversing mm-hmm. those things. I thought we might get into that, but I'm really startled and and loving the fact that what we're talking about here is essentially like that rum old-fashioned okay will you give me the license therefore if, if people ask me in future or about a corn and oil can i say to them you know forget any way you've been making rum old fashions before this is the rum old-fashioned you should be having do, do i have license to do that i would say to an extent yes i mean corn and oil does bring in all those spice flavors so i mean it doesn't quite drink like an old-fashioned drinks in that style um but and the only reason i'm hesitant on that is because i also like a more traditional rum old-fashioned as well. Also a great cocktail. You mm-hmm. take an awesome bottle of rum off the back bar, two ounces of rum and a quarter ounce of a, a three-to-one honey syrup, and you've got an incredible rum old-fashioned. Nice, nice. All right. It's a, it's, it's, it's a runner in the race, at least, therefore. For sure. It's in the same category. You know what I mean? If you're into <laughs> that style of drinks, these are all like you know, roads you should be going down. It's in the conversation right there. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're a bartender and, and looking to maybe sell more rum and someone says, you know, what do you usually drink? I'm an old fashioned drinker. Whip out the, whip out the properly made corn and oil right there. Yeah, for sure. Would be a, a, a great one. And, and, and that's a nice little segue here into uh, your own preparation. So you mentioned some of the specs there up top, but I'd love if we can, uh, you know, revisit that now. And if you can talk us through the preparation of this drink uh, as you're making it now these days uh, in your bar on the menu there. Sure. So I would say if you come in and you call it a uh, corn oil and you're sitting down in the bamboo room, I would take a uh, double old fashioned glass uh, and then build right into the glass uh, two ounces of Let's just go with what we like doing it with. Uh, Four squares, 2010. Um, and a half an ounce of our house-made Falernum. Um, probably four dashes of Agnostura bitters. I would put in a uh, large two-by-two two ice cube, give that a, a really thorough stir in the glass to really dilute and get down to temperature. And cut a lime coin, express 10 to 15 drops of lime 
insert the lime coin, give it one last stir, and serve it. Fantastic. I love it. I can I, I can picture that in my mind as you do that there. And that finishing lime coin, I don't know, the coin is one of the the, the discoveries that I've made since starting this show that I am fascinated by and always enjoy pulling that one out when folks aren't familiar with it. Absolutely. So any final thoughts here today, Kevin, on the corn and oil before we do move into the final questions, uh, recurring weekly questions on the show? I don't think so. I think my own last thought on that was, you know, drink more rum, order more corn and oils, spread the word. Yeah. Yeah, you know, hopefully we're helping do that today. Uh, you've you've certainly got my, you've certainly whet my appetite there with that one. So immediately wondering when cocktail hour is going to come around here. Uh, before it does, though, about those questions, let's begin as we do with question number one. And if you could tell me, please, what style or category of spirits typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Ooh, uh, I would say our back bar is, uh, for obvious reasons, going to be mainly rum. Mm -hmm. uh, But I do have a very soft spot for uh, brandies. So really big cognac and Armagnac fans over here. Um, You know, we certainly love some agave spirits and uh, have a pretty deep selection of Amaros as well. And no one's going to do this to you, obviously. But uh, if you were only able to sip one style of rum... Uh, can you maybe narrow that down just for us here and, and maybe tell us why or what, what, what the thinking behind that might be? Sure. Um, since we've been talking about Barbados rums, um, you know, I think that if I had to only pick one bottle to zip off of a certain style, I would probably go with the blended rum, a rum that's a, a well-balanced blend of a, a uh, aged column still rum with a proportion of pot still rum. I find that that is the most pleasant for um, sipping on rum. 100% pasta rums are great and they're really funky and interesting. Um, but I think for a more enjoyable, balanced experience, that blend of pot column still age drops is, is where I'd be. Nice. Love it. And, and, and you know, we're big proponents here on this show of, of the idea that blending is not a bad thing. Blending's a good thing. Blending is taking the best, or it should be, and it can be taking the best available components and bringing them together into something that's balanced, not leaving anything too much up to nature. And yeah, it should be a synonym for quality there, but maybe it always isn't. For sure. All right, question number two here for you. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Hmm. I would have to say, I would say sort of this concept of, of rail spirits, right? And that's sort of neat. It's a, the bartender sort of needs to change the thinking of that. I think that as an industry, you know, we've been so motivated by keeping cost of cocktail down and, and, you know, really thinking about the business end of things. But once you kind of expand to realize that, you know, there's incredible quality spirits in your back bar. And if you use them to make cocktails, you're going to make incredible drinks. Um, I would say that is, is maybe one of the, the most unrealized tools is is looking out of your well and looking at your back bar and seeing where you can really improve the quality of your cocktails. Oh, amen. I'm uh, that's another thing I'm a big proponent of here too. Yeah, that you know, like allow those bottles for use in cocktails. Don't don't think they need to be only sipped neat because of a price point or whatever. Or maybe you think they're precious or fragile. The, these things should be able to stand up in cocktails and, and and still have their own personality. For sure. All right. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, I would say, you know, I think one thing that I always harken back to is, you know, you know when you think about um, 
you know, bartenders that work in really popular and well-known bars and sort of, you know, navigating through this industry that at the end of the day, the most important skill for you to have is how well you can interact with and entertain your guests. You know, you can make the, the best cocktails in the world, but if you have a terrible personality and you, you can't be entertaining and engaging behind the bar, then honestly, it's all sort of useless. And the same thing, you know, I think goes along with uh, cultivating your team and working with your coworkers. You know, a, a, a piece of it is making great drinks, but there's so much more to this picture than just the cocktail in the glass. Great point right there. Yeah, and it seems to be a sentiment that, that echoes through quite a lot of these episodes there. So uh, always a wonderful reminder. Penultimate question now for you. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Oh, man, that is a tricky one. Um, I'm going to say I would go and have a martini at the uh, Connaught Bar in London. Nice. Tell us more about that. Tell us about your first <laughs> one, your most recent one. Uh, I believe Ago was in town recently over here and had had the pleasure of of an enjoying a martini made by himself. But yeah, tell us tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's when I was kind of talking about that hospitality and experience. I mean, that's a place that you go from start to finish. You know, every every step of your your um, interaction with the space and the cocktail is very very thoughtful. And I just very much appreciate that style of service. Um, and of course, the, you know, the sort of um, customization of your martini to your exact specifications. It's like, I don't know, it's really a special experience. And there's something about that experience too when it comes to sitting in a room, soaking up the history of the space, right? Something that, that's seen so many things right there or that hotel and in that city too. I don't know, it just really adds to the, the experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you you feel like a uh, a member of high society with that first of your martini. <laughs> and all it'll cost you 25, 30 bucks, right? You know, there's something very democratic about cocktails in that way that can bring us in with that. Yeah, and if you said that's this is my last visit to a bar, I think that's how I do it. <laughs> yeah, maybe go for a double. Who knows? Um, yeah. Well, that is a convenient um, step into our final question on the show today, which is, of course, if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? That's a tricky one. I think I would probably, and this is going to sound very elementary probably, but I would drink a daiquiri. I would drink it in my exact specific way, but I think I would kick off on a, on a nice, strong, overproof deck. Uh, a split base between some really well-aged Jamaican and some overproofed uh, Martinique Agricole Blanc. Nice. And what's your thinking when it comes to sweetening agent and citrus, specifically lime there? Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously fresh lime, I tend to do a little heavier proportion of lime. I like a one ounce lime juice daiquiri, which is not a popular opinion. And mm -hmm. for me, the only sugar to make daiquiris with is uh, Martinique cane syrup. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. It's a great choice. Uh, it's an iconic drink right there. Um, definitely a good one to finish on. Uh, Kevin. Don't call it a rum old-fashioned, or maybe do, and don't reach for the old black strap there. This has been the Corn and Oil. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure chatting Corn and Oils with you. Thank you. Hope to uh, raise a glass of Foursquare or something similar in the future together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College 
is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.